I think there's a spectrum that is true for anything new. If you're an early mover, there's certain benefits. You get access to better deals, cheaper capital, better fund managers, less competition. The longer you wait, the more you know about the market, the more you know about the asset class, the more you know about where capital is going, the more you know about the program, but it's more expensive. Your capital is worth less. And so everyone's got to make their own decision for how entrepreneurial they want to be. Hi, you're listening to That Really Happened, Unbelievable Real Estate Stories. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. If you're a real estate investor, this is the podcast for you. Our guest speakers will bring you amazing, intriguing, and unbelievable stories about real estate investing. The stories will be an honest and transparent account about what it actually means to invest in real estate. You'll hear stories that investors don't usually share. Stories about hardships, breaking points, painful truths, and surprising realizations. Sometimes there's a happy ending, and sometimes the story ends very differently than you would expect. So let's get the show started. Hello and welcome to That Really Happened. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties and help investors like yourself join my deals so they can get double-digit returns without the need to find, negotiate, close, and manage the property. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to subscribe to the show. You can always go to my website, www.elliperlman.com, and read the show notes as well. Today, I'm hosting Steve Glickman, the founder and CEO of Develop LLC, an advisory firm focused on building and supporting opportunity funds and the broader Opportunity Zones marketplace. Steve is a junk professor at Georgetown University, where he teaches economic diplomacy and international trade. He previously served in the Obama administration as a senior economic advisor at the National Security Council, where he managed trade and investment issues, and the National Economic Council, where he was responsible for manufacturing and small business programs. That's pretty impressive. Steve also served as a deputy associate counsel at the White House, and Chief of Staff for the U.S. and Foreign Commercial Service at the Commerce Department. Prior to his service at the administration, Steve worked on Capitol Hill as the counsel on the House Committee and a federal criminal prosecutor and investigative counsel at the Democratic National Committee. Steve holds a BA and MA from Georgetown University, JD from Columbia Law School, and LLM from the London School of Economics and Political Science. Steve wrote many publications for Bloomberg, U.S. News, Wall Street Journal, and many, many more. Hey, Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. That, that was a great intro. Absolutely. Almost all of it, I think, was made up, right? <laughs> yeah, we tend to be very creative here in, in our podcast. With all seriousness, that's a very impressive background. Super impressive. And I'm really happy to have you here to talk about Opportunity Zones. This is something that got a lot of attention recently. And, you know, I feel that many investors are wonder about what exactly opportunity zones are and, you know, how the, the whole thing actually works. So if you can, you know, just walk us through what you know about opportunity zones, uh, the short version of it, because otherwise we'll probably sit here for, for days. I'm sure you've got lots of questions. Let me give a little background, though, one small piece that you skipped over, which was that uh, prior to founding Develop, which is an advisory firm for Opportunity Zone Funds, I was the founder and CEO of the Economic Innovation Group. 
And that organization I co-founded with Sean Parker from Napster, Facebook fame. If you ever saw The Social Network, he's Justin mm-hmm. Timberlake, but in real life. We founded uh, EIG together in the beginning of 2013. And really the core of what EIG did was create what became the Opportunity Zone program. Our idea at the time was that we need to find a systemic way to connect capital markets with low-income communities that had been disconnected from those markets for a long time. And that if we could do that through the tax code, we could create a whole new swath of private capital flows for those markets and everything from real estate to infrastructure to energy to businesses. And so that idea in 2013 germinated. We released it as a white paper, then we drafted legislation, and long story short, it got included as part of the big tax reform bill last year. And then we've been working ever since with Treasury and IRS and governors and mayors to implement it around the country. So I left EIG over Labor Day because, in part, I saw this enormous amount of interest from the investor community, the real estate developer community, and that there were a lot of questions. People need a lot of help, and I really want to see the market work. And so I've been working primarily with fund managers who are allocators and aggregators of three, $400 million or more of equity capital for mostly real estate projects around the country, trying to figure out how to use the program. And the real shorthand of it is this is a program designed for long-term equity investments in these opportunity zone communities. And the way it works is you're an investor, you have capital gains, you need capital gains to be incentivized to use the program. You roll over those capital gains within 180 days after you sell your asset into an opportunity zone fund. And your job as the investor is basically done. Then the reward for that is you get a deferral on your taxes. You don't have to pay your capital gains taxes to the end of 2026. If you hold it long enough, at least five or seven years, you get a discount on that tax bill up to 15%. So at the end of the day, investors have to pay 85% of their tax bill at the end of that eight-year period. And then the big incentive is whatever appreciation you get from that fund that you invest in, let's say you sell a million dollars of Apple stock let's say it's all gains and you rolled over into the fund. Now, after 10 years, that those gains are worth, uh, that investment is now worth $5 million in a piece of real estate that fund invests in. All those new gains, if you held it for at least 10 years, are now tax-free. And so it's one of the biggest, if not the biggest economic development program in sort of modern U.S. history. And if we think it will move $100 billion at least in capital a year, in these communities, which is obviously a huge amount of capital. And the, what the real trick is uh, the funds. They, have to, they can invest in lots of different things, but they have to go through basically a, a test, an examination to understand whether the assets they're investing in will qualify. We can talk about what that means, but uh, it's been very popular in the real estate market. It's primarily for real estate that you're developing or improving. So this isn't for like stabilized property. And uh, it obviously has to be in the zone. And these zones are, there are now 8,760 of them. It's about 12% of the U.S. And it's in most major markets around the country, just about every city. And it's the downtown of many of those cities, including their chunks right where you are in downtown L.A. And, you know, the whole central business district of most of the cities in the middle of the country. So this is a really interesting opportunity for those who are willing to, you know, take a little risk because they're in riskier asset class in, in second and third tier markets or places like LA and are willing to raise equity capital from high net worth investors, uh, which is typically the sort of investors participating in this program. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Interesting. And who chooses which areas are going to be categorized as opportunity zones? So all those zones have already been chosen. Uh, they were chosen by the governors of every state. So the governors picked 25% of their low-income communities and got to on net 12% of the U.S. They were all picked in June, and those designations last till the end of 2028. So they're pretty much locked in. So you can go to lots of different places, including my website, developadvisors.com, and you can find a searchable map. You put in any address, city, state, county, and you'll be able to find where there are opportunity zones nearby. You'll also be able to see where the hospitals and universities are in, nearby and see where they are in opportunity zones as well. Got it. Got it. Excellent. Is there anything that you believe that investors should be aware of when they consider investing in a property that is in an opportunity zone? Well, first of all, most investors are going to work through funds. So you're either going to create your own fund or you're going to invest in someone else's fund. Uh, there are more and more fund managers and funds being launched all the time, as particularly as there's more clarity on the rules of how the program works. I think you're going to use a lot of the same judgments you use now, though. I mean, you're, you're going to look at the rate of return. You're going to look at the track record of the fund manager. You're going to look at the type of assets and the places they're being invested. I mean, you got to make the same kind of decisions. The benefit is your IRR maybe has a 50% boost now. So if you're looking at a 10 or to 15% return pre-tax, post-tax using this program, you may be looking at 15 to 22, 23% or more. And that makes it obviously very interesting. It makes it competitive with just about any asset class in the country. So you're gonna use all the same criteria you use now though, I'd say with an additional element of, okay, what does this fund manager know about this program? Can they invest in a way that's going to safeguard my tax liability as my fiduciary? Who are they working with? Are they working with the right law firms, accountancies, advisors, and others to help help them manage the fund that way? And I think if you, they can, you know, if, they, if they're able to do that on top of being a good real estate investor, then this is going to be a very attractive asset class for a lot of uh, a lot of retail investors. Got it. Got it. So, Steve, what do you think are the the main risks that you believe that an investor can face today when they invest in an opportunity zone? Well, so in, in some ways, it's the same risk you face anyhow, but you have to know what the, so what the asset class is. So again, they're not stabilized assets. So there's development risk in the assets that are, that are in this program. These are in low-income communities, so they've got some economic distress. So you're really betting on their trajectory over the next 10 or 12 years. And I think across the program, that's that's what people are really doing. They're betting on neighborhoods and what those neighborhoods are likely to be. It's obviously easier to make that case if you're talking about properties in Brooklyn or Newark or Oakland, which are all have opportunity zones, than if you're talking about places that are kind of further out on the development time frame. But those might be places you have all cheaper assets, so they can appreciate much more and you can shield all that gain from, from tax. So every fund's going to have a different strategy. I think that really the biggest risk is that you're working with a fund manager that doesn't understand how the program works. And because of that, they don't invest in the way they're supposed to, and they don't are careful in how they choose assets. They could create some tax liability or tax penalties from the IRS that the investors would be on the hook for. At the end of the day, though, the penalties in this program are pretty low. The worst case scenario is really just pay off that tax that you deferred and you've now got a market rate investment. And so really the big problems only come into play if you're investing in a fund that isn't isn't projecting or isn't putting out 
good returns pre-tax. If they're doing that, you're going to be fine no matter what happens. Got it. And you mentioned a couple of times that an important thing for an investor to do would be to vet the sponsor and make sure that the sponsor is familiar with the program that he or she knows exactly what they're doing. How can a passive investor do that? How can they vet someone besides asking, are you familiar, you know, with opportunity zones or how familiar are you with opportunity zones? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think it's like the way you'd invent kind of anyone, you kind of make a judgment based on the facts in front of you. So one, do they have good answers for questions as an investor? And I think that means as an investor, you've got to get up to speed, you know, in terms of your own knowledge of the program. So at least you know the smart questions to ask, even if you don't know the answers to them. I think two, who are they working with? So do they have other investors that are credible? Are they working with advisors who are credible? Are they working with people that give you confidence that they know what they're doing? And three, it's their track record. I mean, if these are people that have successfully raised and deployed real estate investor capital before, but you know they're going to care about producing returns for their investors and not you know, not creating a, a tax problem for them. And so I think that's another good sign that they're taking this seriously. I'd be worried about people who are new to the program, not new to the program because everyone's new to the program, but new to real estate investing and are viewing this as their way in. Those are the type of fund managers that would concern me unless they really have a long history of managing private equity dollars. Interesting about this marketplace is a lot of the features of it are brand new. You don't, real estate, you know, primarily invest investment in real estate comes from pension funds and endowments and institutional capital, which isn't, isn't taxable. And so they're not going to be investors in this program. So you're really marrying high net worth investors with these development projects in these second tier markets. It's a brand new marketplace. So there's all, there's going to be brand new players involved. And I think you have to ensure that they know something about private equity, they know something about fund management, they know something about real estate, and they know something about the program, or they're surrounded by people who do. And there may not be that many funds who make the cut there, at least early on, and so I think it's important to find the ones who are serious. There have been, uh, I don't know, a dozen or more stories around the country around different funds that are launching in the Wall Street Journal, in Bloomberg, in, in Real Deal, in BizNow that are tracking this. So there are some media outlets that are helping, I think, figure out who's credible from who's not. That's that's a good point. That's good advice. And then, Steve, do you have any favorite opportunity zone markets or sub-markets that, that you think are particularly interesting? So I think it's much less about the market than it is about the deal in front of you. Mm. There are lots of markets that may not be on the radar screen that may turn out to be very interesting investments. I think you see a, a lot of the activity in places you'd kind of expect. So there are opportunity zones, as I mentioned before, in Oakland, in downtown LA, in Newark, in other in Chicago, in other high-performing markets that where there may be a few projects that sort of made the cut or a few areas that made the cut that I think are sort of the first mover places. But listen, these, these are 8,700 zones. There are tens of thousands of projects. They're all going to have different like pros and cons. They're, they're going to have you know, different ways they can be structured, different types of assets that can be built on them. I don't think there's a perfect project in mind. But I, I think what investors should expect is, at least at this point in the market, typical returns pre-tax as they'd be getting before. So again, 10 to 15%, maybe slightly lower than you'd expect in an opportunistic real estate fund. And uh, over time, that there may be even more flexibility on those returns as investors are more and more comfortable with the tax benefit here and can count on it more. 
Got it. Okay. And another question that I had for you, and it's actually, I think, more of an opinion. When I see something new, obviously, there's the, I can see the potential. I can see, especially being one of the first movers in that market could be really interesting. But then on the other hand, do you think that there's some sort of risk with joining a, a fund that is part of a piece of legislation that is pretty new. So on the one hand, it's it's an opportunity. On the other hand, there might be, do you think there might be some sort of risk there because we're unsure how that's going to play out in the next you know, couple of years or so? Maybe something is not going to happen as we think you know, would happen. There's going to be maybe some more changes to the legislation. What are your thoughts on that? Well, so the short answer is yeah. I mean, obviously there's a risk that the regulations come out differently than the fund you're working with is is predicting. I think there's a spectrum that is true for anything new. If you're an early mover, there's certain benefits. You get access to better deals, cheaper capital, better fund managers, less competition. The longer you wait, the more you know about the market, the more you know about the asset class, you know, you, the more you know about where capital is going, the more you know about the program, but it's more expensive. Your capital is worth less. And so everyone's got to make their own decision for how entrepreneurial they want to be. I'd say the actual risks are much lower than the perceived risks, though. Because even if you get the regs totally wrong, again, if you're investing in a fund that makes sense, it's doing deals that make sense regardless of the tax and setup, there's either no penalties or very low penalties. The, the penalty for the fund, if they're not investing in a way that's consistent with the program, is they get penalized at the underpayment tax penalty rate, so like 5% for the year. And if, it, and if they weren't close enough to compliance, they basically have their investors pay off their tax, their tax deferral, and they would, you know, the, the fund would be then a market rate fund again. They'd lose the tax benefit and you know, things would move on. So the actual risk is pretty low. And you know, frankly, I think most funds, at least that I'm talking with, there's like a 95%, 90, maybe it's a 99% likelihood that their strategy is going to work fine with IRS. I think the real thing to worry about, and it'll be hard if you don't know the market, a little bit at least, is to stay away from folks that are kind of huckstering in this market, that are coming in to try to make a buck because they know investors are eager to find funds to invest in. And so everyone's got to be smart about that, just like they would about any other investment decision. I think it's pretty easy to tell who's serious and who's not from who they're surrounded by and who they're, who they're working with and who's taking them seriously. And over time, you may see more institutional form of these funds that will come with a institutional seal of approval, but right now it's very entrepreneurial. So my sense though, from having talked to lots of investors and lots of wealth managers, is that there's tons of demand from the investor side, that there's probably more capital than there are fund managers and deals. And so there's plenty of people competing to be capital in, in these funds. You know, the question is finding a good match there between the funds, the deals, and the, and the fund managers. Yeah. Or the, the investors, the right. deals, and the fund managers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think it's going to be, I mean, it's challenging for passive investors to vet the deals and the sponsors as, you know, right now w without even adding this another layer of opportunity zone. So it's a little bit more complicated, but I think if, if you educate yourself, if you do all the due diligence that you can, then that could be an, an excellent, potentially an excellent opportunity. Many folks who've, who've got, uh, this is not really for someone who's like 
has $50,000 to invest and is looking for a place to invest. So this is a program for people that have a lots of expendable capital, lots of capital gains. Maybe they have a capital gains event because they sold a stock or a company or a real estate asset. And they just need to find, they'd rather put it into a fund like this and have to pay the tax on it. So they're willing to take the risk. Right. But they're oftentimes, you know, represented by wealth managers, by lawyers, by accountants, who will also be able to vet the funds and the program and the sponsors. And I, I find at least most people who I'm talking about who are serious in the market on the investor side are doing that. They're working with their advisors to help them figure this out. And there are lots of people who are poking around the marketplace I'd say there are a lot more experts than expertise, let's say, but there are a lot of people at least trying to educate themselves about this. Mm -hmm. That's fair. That's, that's pretty fair. So Steve, where do you see, you know, the whole industry going? What do you think the future holds for, for opportunity zones? So again, I'm betting my whole career on the fact that this is going to be big. So I hope I'm right. The evidence I've gotten from the market so far is pretty strong. There's enormous amount of interest from investors, there are new funds launching every day. Communities are very excited about this. Something I we haven't talked about a ton. And obviously, the real estate developer community is very organized around this already. Eventually, I think this will move past real estate. I know you're very focused in the real estate marketplace, and so am I, because that's most of my clients. But eventually, this will be a source of private equity for business investment that I think will even eclipse the real estate market. Already now, I see it in things like energy particularly renewable energy as part of real estate deals, pace financing, solar panels, co-generation, batteries, power, uh, fuel cells. I see it in vertical agriculture. I see it in incubator accelerator models on the venture capital side. I see it in franchises around grocery stores and you know restaurants. Oh, I mean, I think one of the themes here is that, and you'll see it in business like technology companies as well, but one of the, as this market transitions between real estate and businesses, I think you'll see a lot of businesses that have real estate heavy components of them be early adopters of it, as long as within that context, you can basically create a new business model. So in a franchise, is great because you can create a new independently operated business in a zone and it qualifies as, being, as getting the same kind of tax benefit. That's in terms of asset class. I think in terms of capital, you're going to see this move from multifamily, single family, high wealth high net worth to corporate investors and institutional wealth managers who are going to be help the gatekeeping that you're talking about that we've been talking about around how to connect capital with the right funds and how to vet those funds. And over time, I think you'll see the types of places that are interested in invest change as well. So right now, you know, investors are very focused. Investment itself and investors are focused kind of together. They're in New York, LA, San Francisco, Boston, Chicago, DC. And then around the rest of the country, it's a much more thin scattering of in these investors. And that will start to change. I think people will see downtown Birmingham or Detroit or Louisville or Cleveland and start to see that you can buy very cheap assets there. And if you believe over 12 years, you know, that I use 12 years because that's a typical length of a lot of opportunity zone funds. It's mm -hmm. two years to raise capital, 10 years to hold the assets that you buy so that everyone's getting that tax incentive. And then some, some amount of time to, you know, to sell the assets. So these are long-term funds. And if you can make a long-term bet on places and as more and more capital is in the market, it'll be easier to see what places are interesting to invest in. I think you'll see the geography change. And that's when we'll know the program has worked. When you see the map of the country change of where, cap, of where investors are looking to make their next bet, build their next development, 
that should work out well for everyone, create a whole new set of opportunity for those communities, but also create appreciation, create good deals all mm -hmm. over the country that are now going to have tax-free treatment. Got it. So you're basically talking about some sort of a demographic shift thanks to the program, but we're not talking about opportunity zones that are only that only apply in crime areas or crime zones or, you know, very high crime areas. No, well, I mean, so crime wasn't a factor in how in how governors pick zones. They were picking it based on economic criteria. The, the two big ones were median income and poverty rate. So these are places that are poorer than your average zone, but and they're places that are 60% non-white, but uh, where the poverty rate's 30% and the median income's 60% of the state. So these are places that, that obviously have been in economic trouble for a while, which is why they're part of the program. But when you actually, when you look at the map, and if you use one of these searchable maps, like the one I, I pointed out, you'll be amazed at the parts of the country that these zones are in. They're not really in places you would never invest in. They're in places that are, you know, transforming and at some stage of that transformation. So, mm -hmm. you know, big chunks of, again, the downtowns of, of major cities. Now, some of those cities have a crime problem. So like almost all of downtown Baltimore is an opportunity. So crime is a big issue in Baltimore. Those things are obviously connected, but there's also great assets there, right next to Johns Hopkins University, right next to Under Armour's new development, right by the Inner Harbor that if, again, if you're willing to trust your, your fund sponsor, your developer, the partners in this program, you can see the change in, that, in, in where those cities could get 12 years from now. And I live in D.C., as you know. If you look at D.C., when I first moved here in 1998, before the Verizon Center was built and what it looks like now, it's two different cities. It was a city that you lived in only a few neighborhoods, Capitol Hill, Georgetown, DuPont mm -hmm. Circle. And now... You know, most of the city now has interesting stuff. It's got, you know, it's got markets and it's got restaurants and it's got new developments. And that's made big changes to the city that are controversial, but it's also created a bunch of economic opportunity and created a city that now people are really right. want to be in. So, you know, I think you're betting on the next DC. I think you're betting on the next place to merge in the next 10, 12, 15 years that it's going to be a hot spot for business activity and for, you know, the next generation of workers. Mm -hmm. That was a great answer. Thank you for that. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for sharing your wisdom and knowledge about Opportunity Zones with me and my listeners. I'm definitely a smarter person now. The last question I had for you was basically, you know, one of our listeners would like to reach out to you. Where can people find you? Sure. So uh, again, I've got a site, developadvisors.com that has bunch of information, my contact information. They can email me there. My email is steve at developadvisors.com. I work predominantly with fund managers, wealth managers, fund sponsors, and developers who are raising lots of capital. But I get contacted by people all over the marketplace, investors, people who have deals. And part of my bigger goal is to build the marketplace. So I, the best I can, I try to connect them with partners that they can work with. It's not all business for me, although it's, you know, it's not a bad thing to make money, particularly after spending all that time in government. I still want to see people be participants in the marketplace and have success. So to the extent I can, I try to help people find their way there. All right. All right. Wonderful. Well, thank you again, Steve. And, you know, I think you're part of something amazing, something great that has just started, you know, recently. And I think it'll be exciting to see where it's going. Thanks for having me on. It was a great conversation and I uh, hope we do it again. Yeah, absolutely.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.